Well, I've heard it said on uh, several occasions in several different ways by several different people with saying words a little bit differently, but <clears throat> the message has always been the same, that those who are suffering are helped mostly by those who have suffered. In other words, in the midst of, of suffering, people tend to find their most comfort when another person comes alongside them who has experienced suffering and, and oftentimes if they've experienced the same sort of suffering as they are now experiencing, it is of, of special help to them. Right? Nothing helps the young widow as another woman who lost her husband years before and has learned how to deal with it. The couple that's lost their child is best equipped to minister to others whose child just died as well. When a man loses his job and can't work, um, then another man who's been out of work for nine months and is facing feelings of hopelessness and despair, he can be comforted by the one who's been out of work and yet God has been faithful to him. Those facing financial bondage, are often helped by those who were in financial bondage before and through patience and diligence have uh, disciplined themselves to work their way out of debt. I mean, that's just the way things often work. And the world knows this. There are often, uh, there are many support groups that are, are created just around this whole environment. Uh, think about a support group like Alcoholics Anonymous. The world recognizes clearly that, um, that there is a help. There's a real help in those who are... are um, struggling with their addiction to alcohol, to be around other people who have the same struggles but who have conquered it in some way or other and they're using worldly methods. But, but that's okay. The world is, is seeing there. The people who have suffered and gone through it, there's often a big help in that. In fact, I did a little search online about the different kinds of support groups there are in, uh, in the world and literally there are hundreds of different types of support groups dealing with different kinds of things. There are support groups dealing with uh, helping people with their bereavement, the grief of loss, losing a loved one. There are support groups helping with people who are, have cancer and uh, struggling with the difficulties of chemotherapy and, and losing hair and everything that means. There are, are support groups for those dealing with depression who can't seem to get out of bed in the morning, those who um, have diabetes, those who have gone through divorce, those who have eating disorders, those who are struggling with infertility or parenting or autism, chronic pain, paralysis, burns, osteoporosis, adoption, college stress, obesity, studying, stuttering. I mean, everything under the sun. My, my favorite one that I saw was a, a support group for support of those who are short of stature. <laughs> That's the one I, I most liked. But these support groups are merely the world recognizing that when someone is suffering, there's a principle that those who suffered similar things can be of great help. Whenever someone can say, been there, done that, they can be of great help to you. It's a biblical concept as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes of how his own suffering has equipped him to help others. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that, in other words, I'm afflicted, God's comforting in me, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, Paul says, I've been through this trial, been through this difficulty, but I found God is, is faithful and He has comforted me. And so you, in your difficulty and your suffering, I can use that comfort to comfort you to know that God is faithful to help you in many ways. Paul continues, Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. As our sufferings increase, God's comfort increases. But if we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also are you sharers of our comfort. 
The world understands, the Bible understands, that those who go through suffering are most equipped to help those who are suffering themselves. Well, I say that by way of introduction because Peter has suffered much. We are in an exposition of 1 Peter. Last week I began our exposition with an overview of the entire epistle and I sought to highlight for you the, the major themes in, in uh, 1 Peter and I came up with one major theme and I, I trust that all of you remember the theme of 1 Peter. What's the theme of 1 Peter again? Glory later. Great, great. You've encouraged me by that, by remembering that. Suffer now, glory later. And as we come to 1 Peter, Peter is a man who has suffered much. And having suffered much, he is able, therefore, and he's qualified to teach all of us much about sufferings as well. So I think about the sufferings of Peter this week. I think about he suffered in the fact that he failed his Lord. Perhaps you remember the night when he was betrayed. Jesus predicted all his followers would fall away from him. He quoted from Zechariah 13, verse 7, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And the disciples were saying, no, no, we're not going to fall away. And Peter even stood and he said, even though all may fall because of you, Lord, I will never fall away. And Jesus looked at him, I'm sure, and kind of smiled and said, okay, Peter, I'll tell you what, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And sure enough, these little girls, oh, didn't you follow Jesus? No, 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 no. Three times he denied him, and all of a sudden, kr, kr, kr. and Peter suffered great distress that night. The scripture says they went and wept bitterly, having failed his Lord so greatly. Peter knew what it was to suffer a cruel death. Church tradition has it that Peter was, was crucified on a cross. But thinking so much of an honor for Christ, he said, I can't, I can't be crucified like he was. I, I want to be crucified upside down. So he was crucified upside down. That's what church tradition tells us. And, and not only did he suffer that, he, he knew how to anticipate that suffering because Jesus told him that he was going to suffer a cruel death. John 21, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old... You will stretch out your hands. Right, God's talking about a cross. And someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And those words might seem cryptic to us, but John explains this. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Peter knew that he was going to die a, a painful death. I, I remember reading the uh, autobiography of Bill Bright, uh, founder of Campus Crusade, and, and he had some kind of, I forget what it was, lung lung problem and uh, he knew I remember reading in that biography he knew that he was basically going to die from choking and, and uh, suffocating and he wrote there how oftentimes it caused him difficulty and distress just anticipating his death and to know that you're going to die a painful death upon a cross as Peter did that would cause some anxiety and some suffering towards the future and so Peter knew what that was like Peter knew what it was to suffer persecution for the name of Christ in several occasions of the book of Acts, you see him thrown in prison. In fact, three times in the book of Acts, he's thrown in prison. And uh, I think every time he stands before the, the Sanhedrin, and they say, what are you doing? He tells them I was preaching about Christ. They tell him not to preach. He continues to preach. One time he got away with a, a whipping. It was only the advice of Gamaliel that prevented his death in Acts chapter 5. The early church was persecuted. You know Stephen was martyred. The story of Acts chapter 7 tells about that. In Acts chapter 8 verse 1 it says, A great persecution arose therefore that day. And everybody was scattered throughout all Judea and Samaria. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem under the constant watch and constant guard and constant threat of a government hostile to them. In Acts chapter 12, Herod laid hands on some who belonged to the church to mistreat them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And Herod said, oh, that, that pleased the Jews. And so when he saw that putting James to death pleased the Jews, he captured Peter also, threw him in prison, planning to take the, a sword as well and cut his head off. Peter here is in prison, thinking the next day he's going to die. And it was only a miraculous release by an angel that, um, that allowed him to escape death on that day. And you just think about the kind of torment that that would have caused Peter to suffer not only in jail, not only in prison where 
where uh, conditions were terrible, but also to think about, you know, is this the time that I'm going to die? Is this the time? Am I going to die tomorrow? It seemed like that often eluded him. But on top of that, you can multiply the suffering of the mental torment that he had with his family outside. We know that Peter was married. 1 Corinthians 9, Peter says, Paul says, Do I not have the right to take on a believing wife just like Peter did? Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, and if you have a mother-in-law, it means you need to have a, a wife. So Peter was married, and when he was in prison, certainly he was thinking about the well-being of his wife and his family. And John Bunyan, when John Bunyan was in prison, said that was his greatest suffering. It was not so much prison itself, but to think about his wife and his children. Listen to what John Bunyan said. The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. That is suffering. And that not only because I'm somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer to my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one to go under would break my heart to pieces. He said that in his autobiography, Grace Abounding of Chief of Sinners. Just thinking about his family outside gave him way more distress than being in prison for preaching the gospel. And I think that Peter probably also suffered in the same way as well. Thinking about his wife, maybe it's some children, we don't know, but outside, just thinking about what happens to me, what, what about my wife outside? All this to say that Peter's well qualified to teach us about suffering, having suffered greatly, since the theme of First Peter is, is what again? Suffer now, glory later. Well, last week we looked at the forest. This week we're going to begin to look at the trees. I invite you, if you haven't done so already, to open up to First Peter. We're going to look this morning at the first two verses. And um, I went back and forth, back and forth about how much to preach on. I'm going to try to get through both verses today. Yvonne um, <laughs> asked me this morning, said, well, how many times I flip-flop back and forth? <laughs> I thought four or five. I'm just going to do one. No, I'm going to do. No, I'm just going to do one. No, I'm going to do. Well... Lord willing, we'll do two, all right? Just get on. Here we go. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Here in this short greeting, Peter first identifies himself, then he describes his readers, and then he gives a greeting. I want to read these verses again. I want you in your mind to think about, okay, pick out where's, where's the author, who are the recipients, and where's the greeting. You can probably pick them out. You can maybe circle them where they start. You can find it pretty easily. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. For the sake of ease this morning, I just want to use this breakdown from my outline. The author, recipients, and greetings. I, I tried to be more creative than that, but... This will at least get us into the text. The author, recipient, and greetings. The author identifies himself here in the first word as Peter. <clears throat> now, this wasn't the name given to him by his parents. The name given to him by his parents was, what, kids, do you remember? Any child, do you remember? Daniel, do you remember? What is it? Cephas would be his Aramaic name. Right. Was it Simon? Was his Greek name. So, um, there it is. But he was Simon. Simon, a good biblical name, named after one of the sons of Jacob, head of one of the tribes of Israel. When you read the Gospel accounts, Peter always comes on the scene as Simon. When Jesus calls him, his name was Simon. Early in the ministry of Jesus, his name was Simon. But there was an event in the life of, Je of Peter that changed all that, changed his name. It was when um, Jesus took his disciples up to a retreat, probably in Caesarea Philippi, a little bit north of the Sea of Galilee, He's sitting around with his disciples alone and he asks them the question, who, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
just trying to get the feel for the, the lay of the land. And they're saying, well, some say John the prophet, some say Elijah, some say uh, one of the prophets. And he said, well, who do you say that I am? And then Simon said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at that, Jesus was most delighted. He turned to Jesus, Peter and said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, changing his name from Simon to Peter, and upon this rock, upon this Petra, you are Peter, and upon this Petra I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The name Peter comes from the word Petra, which means rock. Jesus changed his name from Simon to Rocky. That's his name. You think about Peter, think about Rocky. That is his name. You are Rocky. Don't, don't think Sylvester, okay? Just think, you are rocky, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now there's a great divide over interpretation of this passage here in Matthew 6. On the one hand, you have the Roman Catholics who say, oh, look, he's exalting Peter as the first pope. He's the one upon whom the church is built, is Peter himself. And then you have the Protestants who react to that and say, no, it's not Peter at all. It's just a profession. You are the Christ. And I think both of those are extremes to be avoided because definitely there is a sense here where Peter was the key man in the establishment of the church. When the Holy Spirit came down, Acts 2, in the day of Pentecost, filled everybody with, uh, with uh, tongues and they spoke in foreign languages, it was Peter who stood up and preached to the Jews about how you crucified the Lord and Savior and saw 3,000 converted that day. And, and when the gospel went to Samaria... Peter also was sent by the church to Samaria to pray for them, and the Holy Spirit came upon the Samaritans. And then God summoned Peter, Acts chapter 10, to go and speak to Cornelius, the centurion, the Gentile who lived in Caesarea, and thereby he brought the gospel to the Gentiles. He said, it's even strange for me to be in your house, but I know that God shows no partiality, and that now you believe in Christ. And then the Spirit came down, they spoke in tongues. He came back to Jerusalem reported, and thus in Jerusalem said, Acts chapter 11, verse 18, So then God has granted repentance to the Gentiles as well. And Peter is the one that had the keys to the kingdom to open the door that the church would go. Peter, in very many ways, is foundational in the establishment of the church. Like the Roman Catholics say it, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. However, let's not be carried away. Let's understand, though, that it is upon the confession Apart from Christ, we have no church. And it is this confession that uh, the church was built. When Paul went out to uh, preach the gospel, what did he do? He preached Christ and Him crucified. He preached the confession. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Christ. And apart from that confession, we have no church. When Paul went out to build the church, he didn't say, Peter, I need you. You're the foundation. Why don't you come? No, it was upon the foundation of the confession of um, Jesus being the Christ Christ crucified that is the foundation of the church. And Ephesians 2 then says that the apostles themselves are the foundation. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there, there is this sense where there are people who lay the foundation, lay the groundwork upon the church, and that was Peter. But there is a greater sense even also that it's upon the confession that Peter did, you're the Christ. But here was Peter, the rock. He was prominent among the apostles, Peter was. And I think in some sense that's why Jesus said it's upon you that I'm building the church. Everywhere you go, throughout all the Gospels, everywhere you find, you find a list of the disciples, you know who's always first? Peter. Every single time. When Jesus comes down from the mountain to choose his disciples, list of 12 of them, Peter's first. When, Peter wants, when Jesus wants to take uh, his disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration, it's Peter first. When, Peter, when Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection, there's a list of disciples. It was Peter who's listed first. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus went to pray and he went to a more secluded place, who did he take with him? Peter, James, and John. It was Peter who was first. And, and I don't care what list you take in the early apostles, Peter is always first. And I take that to be far more than a coincidence. There's something to it. I think he's first because he's prominent among the apostles. He was the leader of the apostles. And in that sense, he became um, a foundation of the church. He was the rock of the church. 
And yet I find it interesting how, Jesus, how Peter describes himself here. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He easily could have called himself a chief apostle, head of the apostles, but he doesn't. He simply calls himself an apostle. In chapter 5, he does a similar type of thing when he's talking to the elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. He's not saying I'm a chief elder. I'm, I'm the elder who's the apostle. He doesn't do that. I think he shows his humility in 1 Peter chapter 5 that he's going to teach on. Just say, I'm, I'm just a fellow elder among you. And I think his perspective was, though I'm an apostle, though maybe I'm the chief apostle, you know, I'm still just an apostle, one whom Christ has sent. And as Peter was called by Jesus and walked by Jesus, taught by Jesus and sent out by Jesus, I, I think he's qualified to teach us over the next few months as we go through First Peter together, don't you think? Well, he, was, he was with him. This is all the description that Peter gives. Just Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't go into what an apostle means. He doesn't go into all the calling and, and everything here. He just says, I'm simply an apostle. I think it's because those in the early church knew well about Peter. As Edmund Clowney rightly said, Peter's calling as an apostle would have been well known wherever the gospel was preached. The gospels preached, people heard about Peter. I, I think Peter was as famous in those days as Billy Graham is in our days. Any of you heard of this guy, Billy Graham? Yeah, any of you heard of this guy? Yeah. <clears throat> I think likewise. If someone in the church said, you guys heard about Peter? Likewise. <laughs> of course we've heard about Peter. If they hadn't, it's because they were a brand new convert and they weren't told anything about the history of the early church, of how it started in Jerusalem. And Peter was there on the day of Pentecost and preached. And Peter's been a, a, key, a key factor in the spread of the gospel. Everyone in the early church had heard of Peter. He was an apostle. Walk with the Lord. He is worthy to teach us. So there are a few words about the author. Let's turn our attention now to the recipients. <coughs> Verse 1 describes them. To those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now some of these names might be familiar to you a little bit. Um, which of these five are familiar to you? Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. Any of these sound familiar? Galatia. Why does Galatia sound familiar? Galatians, right? What else sounds familiar? Asia. Right? Now, this Asia is different than the Asia we think about. These aren't the Chinese he's sending them to. These are people in Asia Minor. In fact, all of these are, uh, are regions of Asia Minor. I would suspect that Pontus, Cappadocia, and Bithynia are maybe a little bit less well-known to you, but these are regions in, um, in Asia Minor, mostly modern-day Turkey, just kind of um, like counties today, just broad regions of people to whom Peter was writing to. You may not know where they are. And the good news is this, is that the exact location of these places are it's not important for you. It doesn't really matter so much that you know where these places were. But what does matter is how he describes the people in these places. Don't pass by that too quickly. It says that they were scattered aliens. Scattered aliens. Aliens. I want to really spend some time thinking about this recipients because it's going to really show how <clears throat> they probably suffered a lot. A scattered alien's life is a difficult life. Let me put things in perspective. Um, on vacation uh, a couple weeks ago, my family was out in California. My wife's folks are from California, and so we went and stayed with them like we do every year. And uh, we spent a couple days in San Francisco, and we did all the different things in San Francisco. She... Uh, Vaughn's mom grew up in San Francisco, knows San Francisco very well. We went to all of the tourist traps, even some, um, some places which are kind of back of the way. We went to Union Square, Knob Hill. We went to Coit Tower. We went down Lombard Street, you know, back and forth. That was wonderful fun. We went to the Cable Car Museum, visited a fortune cookie factory, crossed the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, looked out upon the city from the Vista Point beyond there, crossed back over the Golden Gate Bridge, dipped our toes in the ocean at China Beach, had a picnic at Golden Gate Park, watched the sunset over the ocean. That was one day. That's kind of fun, huh? Went to Alcatraz the next day. <coughs> Walked through Fisherman's Wharf, went to Gilder Deli Square, had some ice cream there. Had a great time. One of the deals we did on the first day, though, is we went to Chinatown for lunch. And uh, I remember Carissa said, Dad, is, is Chinatown like an official suburb of Los Angeles? Is it an official town, or what exactly is that? And so uh, 
I explained to her, I know it's not officially part of San Francisco. I said, rather, Chinatown has arisen because Chinese immigrants who came over from China came to San Francisco, and initially what they do? They start bunching together with other people who know Chinese. Maybe some people have been there for a little bit. They speak Chinese. I don't know any English. Where am I going to go? I'm going to go with those people who speak Chinese and, and begin to talk with them. And the next people come over. They don't speak any English, but they come and, and join us. And eventually this, this portion of the town just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon as it got bigger and bigger and bigger, there were Chinese shops and, and signs you know, written in Chinese. And uh, places you could buy your Chinese clothes that you can't buy at Kohl's, right? And... Uh, food that you can't buy at your local super Walmart. They've got these things. And uh, all this type of you know, kitchen utensil stuff, you can't buy at Bed Bath & Beyond. They had all these different things there in the Chinese place. In fact, even today, we walked there, we tried to get some directions for a good place to eat, and we had trouble communicating in English to some of these people because they're aliens, and they're there, and they've gathered closely together for survival until they understand English. Some of them never understand English. Some of them stay there all the time. But now imagine yourself being a scattered alien. See, the reason why they gathered is because it's difficult in being an alien. But at least if you get some familiarity with culture and language, you can survive there. But imagine going and being scattered with no support group. Being off on your own. In a foreign language, in a foreign culture, that's what an alien is. That's what an alien who is scattered. Now, it's not impossible to live like that. Many missionaries have gone and be like that. <clears throat> it's okay. Um, but yet, the sense here we get is that they were scattered. I mean, when Peter writes this, Asia Minor, this is a pretty big region, the uh, country of Turkey, basically, he's writing to, uh, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And though this book was was written probably about 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. And though the church exploded, it, it was far from being mature in terms of having different places, well-established churches to many different places. Probably many of these people felt all alone. In fact, some of them may be the only believer in their village. Some of them maybe knew only a handful of other believers in their town or city, wherever they were. Maybe they had to travel for a long time to get to a support group church where they were. They were aliens we know that there was some mature churches there because Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. In chapter 5, verse 1, Peter wrote to the elders. That's the elders over the church. But as the gospel spread, I don't think everyone was involved in church. In fact, it might even be the majority of these people here were off kind of around places, maybe apart from a good, strong church to really help them. And in that sense, they were aliens. Now, when Peter addresses aliens... He's not talking about national aliens. I've talked about national aliens this far just to give you a concept of what's happening. But Peter's not talking about national aliens. He's not talking about the Jew who's come to live in a foreign culture. He's not talking about those who grew up in Spain but now have traveled over to live in Bithynia where the language quite isn't the same. He's not talking about that. Rather, he's talking about those who are still living in their hometowns but because of their faith in Christ, they feel like aliens because this world is no longer their home. And thus, they are scattered, they are aliens living in a foreign land, and they feel the difficulties that come upon them with that. In fact, look, turn over, look at First um, Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Here he's talking to them, you're aliens and you're strangers. It's because of the fact they've embraced Christ, that they've entered a spiritual battle for their souls. It's the flesh and its worldly desires that have come to attack them because they are now spiritual people. And it's the fleshly lusts which are seeking to attack them. And Peter exhorts his readers to lay aside these fleshly lusts. Don't pursue them. Don't continue after them. And that's how they are aliens. They are aliens because they are, are now Christ's living in a, a world that is not their home. See, when Christ came and redeemed us from our sins, He, he came and redeemed us. As He said here in chapter 1, verse 18, from your feudal manner of life inherited from your forefathers. You'd always lived in this sin, but now Christ has redeemed you out of that. You're different now. Christ calls you to live a righteous, holy life. Chapter 2, verse 24, He saved you to die to sin and live to righteousness. And a good place to see what these aliens were dealing with is in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And you turn and look over there. 
says, The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. And he says, Back then, you pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. But see, the time's passed. You've already done that. That's not your world anymore. Your world now is chapter 1, 14 through 16. Be holy, for I am holy. And as you don't live like they do, as you live this way, chapter 4, verse 4, is they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. <laughs> so, in other words, they're over here, and you're over there. They're living in sin, and you're living in righteousness, and they're saying, hey, why are you over there? Why don't you come? You used to be here. You used to be the life of the party. Why don't you come? We've got a party tonight. And that beer and girls and drinking and drugs. Why don't you come and be with us? And when you say no, it's like, it's no fun without you. You're the life of the party. Come over here. And then when you say no, then it says there in chapter 4, verse 4, right at the very end, they malign you. <laughs> what are you, you too good for us now, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes? What's religion got hold of you? So you're out of mind. You're a prude. They call all kinds of things. You're a Puritan. You just get out of here. They start maligning you. And Peter calls his readers to stand firm. Don't be engaged in those things. That's what he says. You're different. You're an alien now. That was the former world, but now you are different. You are a stranger. In fact, he says, chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You were in darkness, and now He's called you out into light, and He's called you to be able to proclaim His excellencies to the world. He says, once you were not a people. These Gentiles over here, they were not a people. But now, he says, you are the people of God. Gentiles are like the New Jerusalem. They are the people of God. You hadn't received mercy. You were in your sins and you were going to face the just recompense of the wrath of God. But now what's happened is you've received mercy. You need to live differently. You need to tell the world of the glories of Christ. And you say, no thank you. You can pursue those things. I have a higher pleasure now. I have a higher pleasure of pleasing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In fact, I have so much joy in, in serving the Lord and in following Him that it is a joy inexpressible and full of glory. Chapter 1, verse 8. And that's the calling of the people to whom Peter was writing to. And that, by the way, is your calling and the application comes right here. We are all aliens and strangers. And to the extent that our community is saturated with Christianity, we're not scattered, but to the extent that our, our community is more and more pagan, we tend to be scattered aliens. You know, being a part of a big church is very helpful in many ways because you see so many people united around the cause of Christ. I remember when I went to seminary at Grace Community Church Thousands of people there worshiping the Lord together, very united in the things. And if you had difficulty in the world, you'd come back and see, Man, look at the scores of people who are here worshiping the Lord. That's wonderful. But if you're in a scattered community where you only have a little bit of fellowship of just a few people, it makes it a little harder. You don't have a huge support group to pull off. You just got a few others. And you struggle. Maybe they're struggling the same thing. And then maybe all of you are struggling. And it's hard. And so these people here, as they were scattered aliens, they were... Uh, they were suffering. They were suffering. Not aliens because they were in a different culture, but aliens because they had a new God and they were the people of God in a new home, had a different hope. I just ask you, can you relate to that at all? Are you, do you feel like you're an alien in this world? You know, there are times when I'm engaged in conversations with people who are living only for the world. And uh, I have a very difficult time. I feel like an alien sometimes. I don't know about the television shows they're watching. I've never heard of the movies they've seen. I, I don't know the names of the actors that they have gone to. Uh, their activities that they think great fun. I, I, I don't have any desire for that. My desire is to be with my God, with my family, and with my church family. That's my desire. And, and, and I feel more and more... Uh, an estrangement from the world and the world's desires. Can you relate to this? If you can't, if you say, you know what, I, I don't relate to that at all. I just, I come to church, church looks the same as the world, it's just different people together, then, then maybe 
you're not born again. Maybe you've not transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And therefore, you're not. Maybe you're here. And I'm describing what an alien is like. You're like, I'm in my culture. This is where I want to be. I'm just fine. And it may just be you need to cry out to Him so that you get over here so you realize, I am different. I'm not like that. I just give you a warning if that's your case. As 1 John says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. In fact, even next week, we're going to look at the tremendous inheritance that we have of abiding forever with God. I mean, that's, that's where Peter starts his epistle. I want to teach you about the eternality of the salvation that you have, the wonderful, unfading um, crown of glory that's imperishable and undefiled. It's just waiting for you. God's protecting you for it so someday you can get there and rejoice with joy, inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that's what it means to be over here. That's where Paul starts. And that's where we ought to be. And know that Paul, Peter's words here in this epistle are going to come to us as great help and guidance in these things as we suffer as being scattered aliens. Well, Paul, Peter's words of comfort begin here in verse 2. You might think of your experience of suffering as an alien, these, these feelings of estrangement from the world as just kind of coming upon you for no real reason. But I think the point here of verse 2 is that Peter says, no, there's a reason why you feel this way. They haven't come merely by accident. God has called us to be different from the world. Look there at the end of verse 1. It says, Who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. He says, You all are chosen. Then he gives three phrases. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You're chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and you're chosen to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Those three phrases we'll look at. And each of them, I think, gives us reason to comfort in the fact that we're over here by sovereign design. We haven't just kind of drifted over here. God has placed us here and by design we are different than the world and by design we are aliens. And as we are aliens by design, that's where we find our comfort. That's where we find our comfort. We see the Holy Trinity at work here in our lives. The, Holy, the, the Father choosing us to be aliens. God the Spirit sanctifying us, giving us godly desires contrary to the world, causing us to be aliens. God the Son calling us to obedience to Him, causing us to be aliens in the world. Listen, your feelings as an alien isn't an accident. It's by God's design Let's look at these phrases. first one here, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God's chosen us for this life. It's come with His design. Um, When you couple this passage here with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, you see that God's choosing, His election comes from before the foundation of the world. It's how He chooses us. It didn't just come on a whim. But it was an eternity past that God chose those to call out of the world unto Himself. Now there are some that say, oh, foreknowledge, that means that God just looked down the corridors of time and, and looked and saw those who would choose Him and so He chose them. <laughs> that, that makes no sense. Think about it. You go to a buffet and um, your spouse, you, you're sitting caring for your child or whatever, or your, your spouse goes up and gets some food for you or maybe your friend or whatever. He goes up and gets some food for you and and picks off some things from the, uh, the uh, buffet and comes and brings it back for you and set it before you. And you say, I chose to eat that food. That's the food I chose. Does that make any sense? Even if, by the way, you could say, oh, I know my wife. She wants me to eat healthy. I'm just going to get you know, lettuce and I'm going to get jello and I'm going to get fish and I'm going to get vegetables and fruit. Even if you knew beforehand what your wife was going to choose and you put that before you, you say... I chose to eat this food. I chose to put this food in. Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Also, second reason, it, does, it doesn't make sense because it adulterates this word chosen. 
You strip it of all meaning. The word here used means you're actively picking out of things for your own self, for your own help. That's what this word means. And God doesn't choose those who choose Him. Actually, the reverse is true. The ones whom God chooses, choose God. The second reason why is this meaning of this word foreknow. Certainly it can mean that God knew the facts beforehand. But when it's used in the Bible, most often it speaks about knowing a person with an intimate knowledge and care. In fact, even the, the King James, um, not at this spot, but another spot, even it translates this word foreknown as foreordained. God knew it before. He loved them before. That's the sense in chapter 1, verse 20. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world was appearing these last times for the sake of you. And, and, and there it was that Jesus, before the foundation was, of the world, was foreknown to be the sacrifice for sins. As Revelation says, slain from the foundation of the world. God knew, God planned, God ordained the path that Christ would walk. And Wayne Grudem summarized this well. He says, according to the foreknowledge, quote-unquote, suggests according to God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. And that, by the way, comes, I think, in context here, First Peter's great comfort. Our situation in life as aliens has come from the, the kind, sovereign hand of God. God has pulled us out of this life. He has put us into this life to be distressed and to have difficulties and to have trials and to live as an alien by His sovereign, kind design. This is His wonderful plan for your life, that we would feel like aliens and strangers and battle the lusts of the flesh. That's God's wonderful plan for our life. And that's comforting to see God's active hand of doing that. In fact, we will see that in chapter 1, verse 3 next week. We see, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, He causes us to be born again to a living hope. <laughs> you say, who's causing the born again? It's, it's God. Remember when Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus, and I'll probably refer to this next week. He said, the wind blows where it wills. Where it goes, you don't even know. So it is with the Spirit. And He is the one who borns again. Borns people again. I don't know the word to use. Maybe I'll think of it this week. But He is the one that regenerates people according to His sovereign pleasure. And that should find great comfort for our souls, knowing that our, our suffering as scattered aliens is under the watchful care of a sovereign God. And the second phrase here in verse 2 is also filled with comfort. God's chosen us to feel like aliens and strangers by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Do you realize the reason you feel like an alien in the world is because of the work that the Spirit of God has done in your life? I mean, the reason why you feel like you're standing over here and not over there is because God's Spirit has so worked in you to sanctify you and to, to change you and to give you different desires. So, let me, let me try to illustrate this. Picture yourself on a cattle farm. You're serving as a hired hand. <clears throat> Your job is to herd the cattle, feed the cattle, clean up after the cattle. It's a hot and sweaty, dirty, stinky job. In fact, even we as a family we drove by the, the cattle farm last night. Do you remember that, SR? Chris, I know you probably remember it, do you? It, it smelled nice, right? Like flowers, right? No, it didn't. It um, smelled awful. It's dirty work. But it's what you signed up for. You're the farmhand. Now, imagine the day before you start work, you have a meeting with your boss, your farm boss, and, and your boss says this. He says, I expect you to come every day to work in a suit and tie. That's how I want you to, that's how I want you to dress. And you're like, well, what's that about? He's like, I know it's a little bit strange, I know that it might be a little bit weird, but that's how I want you to dress. And I want you to work with those clothes on. <clears throat> All right, so imagine your first day on the job, you're coming in a suit and tie, and uh, what are the farmhands going to think? <laughs> look, look who's the rookie on the job. And they start looking at you and start laughing at you and saying, what in the world are you doing? They would ridicule you. Why are you dressing so nice so you don't need to do that? You come on over here. Wear your dirty clothes, right? Wear your grubby clothes. Be here. Work with us. Where are you going to find your comfort? You yourself would probably think, well, this is kind of funny. Why am I, why am I dressed so pristinely working in the slop? You're going to find your comfort when you realize that it's the boss who told you to do this. And so likewise, in some small way, 
That's what the Spirit of God has done for us. He's sanctified us, made us pure, made us clean. And you are called by God to walk in purity as you live in the slop of the world. And you're going to find your comfort when you realize it's the Spirit of God who's done that in your life. If you just did it on your own, and you say, I'm just going to wear a suit, you kind of feel, you kind of feel silly. Look like, this is kind of strange. He says, that's what God has determined and does by His Spirit in me. Then you can do that. The reason we feel like aliens in the sinful world is because of God's sanctifying work in the soul. The third phrase here in verse 2 also points in the same direction. God has chosen us to feel like aliens and strangers because we are set in our salvation to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. When God calls us to salvation, He calls us to obedience. I mean, that's what it says here, right here. God's chosen us by the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. You know, the people today who take obedience entirely out of God's calling of us. They say, all you need to do is believe. Believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter what way you live, as long as you believe. Well, there's no other way for a Christian to live other than obeying Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 17, Peter asks the rhetorical question, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There's obedience in the gospel. There's obedience in the good news. It means we've been transferred to a different kingdom. It's not that we've been saved over here by our obedience, but in bringing us into this kingdom, we are saved to obey. That's what we're called to do. And this is grace to obey. In chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says, This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What's the grace of God? Is that you stand firm in all of these commands to obey God in all these different ways. Now, obedience to Jesus will cause friction in the world. It's going to make you feel uncomfortable. Obeying Jesus Christ will make you feel like an alien. And I just simply say that's intentional. It's not like God is surprised. Ooh, I didn't know if they'd obey me. They'd, they'd be distressed by the world. It's totally intentional, totally by the sovereign design of God. Jesus knew full well the implications of being united with Him. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are, not, if you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Jesus is clear, right? If you're in the world, the world wouldn't hate you. But listen, I've chosen you out of the world and I've put you here and because you're not of the world anymore, the world hates you because it hated me. Because I was not of the world and it hated me. It's sovereign design that you're different. You are different by design to feel like an alien and to suffer as a result. Well, these three phrases indicate any suffering that we experience is due to our love for God is totally planned totally intentional, and that's where you ought to find your comfort. Listen, in your suffering, you're not going to find comfort in a God who just says, oh, I wish they wouldn't treat you so badly. And I'm just not powerful enough to help you. You'll find zero comfort in that. But you'll find all your comfort to say this, is have God say, you know what, I've got you there for a reason. You may not understand what that reason is. You may suffer and you may undergo some persecution and affliction and difficulty and trial and sorrow and hardship. But it's because of my intent and I'm there. And, you know, it's only for a little while. Chapter 1, verse 6. You greatly rejoice in this because even though now for a little while you suffer various trials, that's where your comfort comes. It's not going to just wipe you out. It's just for a little while and God's sovereign hands over that. In fact, it says in chapter 1, verse 5, you're protected for your ultimate salvation someday. God's got his hand totally around you. And if you know that your suffering is by sovereign design and a, kind of, a hand of a good, kind God is around you, you can endure that kind of suffering. And I think that's what Peter's motive was getting here in verse 2. Well, we just have a few moments left. Let's look here at the greeting real fast. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Now, we could easily pass this by. Uh, I just want to make one observation, really, uh, about it. Maybe two observations. I'm not sure. But, but think about how helpful this would be for people in distressful situations. You're in distress. What do you need when you're being distressed over here? The world is maligning you. Your flesh is pulling you this way. You're suffering of some type. What do you need at that point? 
You need two things. You need God's grace to help you deal with it and you need the peace of God realizing that you are right where you want to be in the sovereign plan of God. So these words are like exactly what the people need ultimately. They need God's grace. They need God's peace. Now, often, however, grace and peace, they might come across like a cliche. Like, that's what you always say. In fact, I looked at all of Paul's letters as he started them. You realize that without exception, all 13 of his letters that he wrote, wrote, Hebrews, it's debated, so I didn't include Hebrews there. Every time, 13 times, he says, grace and peace to you. 13 times, every time. Now, sometimes there are a little bit of variation. Sometimes, once he says, grace and mercy and peace to you. Sometimes it's grace to you and peace from God our Father. And different things. But he always says, grace and peace to you. I think Peter knew of how Paul wrote his epistles because according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he talks about how he's read some of his epistles and Paul's epistles are pretty hard, is what he says. So Peter knew how Paul wrote, but Paul never wrote what Peter added, and I think what he added is the key. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Paul never really added much to his greetings. It was always the same old, same old, big cliché. Just kind of you can pass it on just so easily. But by adding these words in the fullest measure, I think that Paul's attempting to show that he really means what he's saying. A lot like, for instance, sometimes there are words that we use in English which are, we just use them so much they mean nothing. Right? Maybe I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How many times do you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry? And, and, and it can be so often you just kind of, well, okay, yeah, whatever. And the writer's, who heard this from Peter, because said, yeah, right, grace and TV. Okay, okay, yeah. But what if you want to show someone that you really are sorry? What do you say? You say, I'm really sorry. You change it up somehow. If you change it up somehow, you'd be like, oh, that, he really means this. Or, or I'm, I'm very terribly sorry. Right? You add some superlatives to that, and it's like, oh, that's a little bit different. You're just not saying that. You really mean that, don't you? And I think that's what Peter is saying right here. He's saying, I really mean it. May grace and the peace, may the grace of God, may the peace of God truly be, be yours in the fullest measure. May you really understand that. May it really be yours. And as I close, I simply want to turn this upon any of you who are suffering today. May God truly grant you His grace and His peace to deal with your situation. If I could, I'd be a priest and just bless you, right? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May He lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. We all need that. I just pray that you might feel that upon the Lord, the Lord giving that to you today in your suffering. So let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful that we got through these verses. And I'm thankful for Peter what he's learned, how he's qualified to teach us. He's the, the mighty apostle. And uh, he is going to teach us in these next months about suffering. And I pray, Lord, that at Rock Valley Bible Church we would learn to suffer well. I pray you'd teach us in these things. May we be open to that. I pray especially for next week. I can't wait to expound the words beginning in chapter 1, verse 3 of our great salvation and how that is the antidote to the suffering of this life. To give us a, a view of the greatness of our salvation. And if there are people suffering here today, it's not if, it's for those particularly who are suffering and those who are suffering greatly today. Lord, I pray your grace and peace would come upon them in fullest measure.